So Philemon is un, unlike most of Paul's letters in that it is not addressed to the churches of a particular city, um, whether that city is Corinth or Rome. It's addressed to an individual whose name is Philemon. It is one of four letters that Paul composes while he's in the clink, while he's in jail. But where is he doing jail at this time? You know, he's had a few brushes with the law, so uh, there's some debate. Uh, up until the 8th century, everyone assumed this is written while Paul is in jail in Rome. Um, and some still argue for that reading, and I think, I think we're going to stick with that one, the idea that Paul is in, in Rome here. And now, one of the things about prison in the ancient world is that it provided prisoners with one service and typically one service only, which was to lock them up. Um, you had to rely on outside help for everything else. And so, and this letter is about someone whom Paul came to rely on during this particular prison stint, a person named Onesimus, a name that means useful, which you'll understand why I pointed that out when we read the text. Somehow, Onesimus heard Paul's message, and it changed him. He's a convert, and the two become very close. In fact, Paul would have loved to keep Onesimus around. But he learns Onesimus's story. And when he learns Onesimus's story, he learns that they know someone in common. Because Onesimus did not just travel to Rome, he fled there. He's a slave who went AWOL. See me, apparently he saw some opportunity to take advantage of his master, take some of his master's dough and hightailed it to the big city. Anyway, the person that they, have, they know in common is his master, Philemon. Like Onesimus, Philemon too had heard Paul's message of the gospel probably while they were both visiting Ephesus. And when Philemon leaves Ephesus and goes home, he opens his home uh, to become a church. Uh, and, and so, yeah, Paul knows Philemon. Philemon is a dear friend. And so as much as he enjoys Onesimus, he knows that this can't go on. Something has to be done. Here's, here's what I thought that conversation might be like. Hey, Paul, I brought you that change of clothes. You got to go back. You got to make this right. To Philemon? I'm afraid not. Me staying here is about as right as it's going to get. He's a good man. Paul, I'm sure you brought out the best in him, but the worst in him is still in there. I show up on his doorstep, and that's the part that will greet me. He will do what's right. And what's that? You know him as the leader of the church, but he is also a big man in the broader community. 
When I flew the coop, I brought shame to that household. Just taking me back will make him look weak. Doing what's right lands me in jail. That's not what I mean. I know, but what makes you think he'll give me two seconds to explain what it is you mean? You won't have to. I'll do it. How? With this. A letter? Are you serious? Listen, don't estimate, underestimate a letter, especially one of my letters. I hate to brag, but some of my letters are pretty popular. Like this one I wrote to the churches in Galatia. They still read it. And that was like 10 years ago. 10 years is a long time. Is this letter as good as that one? I, I, I don't know. Asking me to compare is like, to compare these letters is like comparing apples and figs. Okay, okay. Let's say someone decided to make a book of your letters. A book from my letters, Anesimus. Let's say they make a book and they say, these letters are so good, it's like they were inspired by God. This other letter, the one written to who again? The Galatians. Galatians makes it into the book. The letter to the Galatians. Just calling it Galatians doesn't make any sense. Whatever. That letter makes it. Does Onesimus make it into the book? Onesimus? Wouldn't, wouldn't the letter be called Philemon? Does it make it into the book? Okay, how about I just read it to you? Okay, okay. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man now, also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, and even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong, 
or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. So I'm, I'm currently reading a novel entitled Infinite Jest. Uh, it's a satirical novel, just short of infinity in length. But its main character uh, is this kid, Hal. He's in high school. He's a tennis player, and he comes home from a tennis match, and he discovers his father dead on the kitchen floor after putting his head in the oven, the microwave oven. It's a, again, it's a strange book. Uh, his mom insists that he see a, a grief and therapy counselor uh, to deal with the fact that this has happened. Well, because Hal is a high achiever, he has learned, and this is his phrase, he's learned to deliver the goods to any sort of authority figure in his life. Problem is, this therapist is an exception. He doesn't know how to deliver the goods, and it's causing him to lose sleep, to lose weight, to lose tennis matches. So he begins to read textbooks that were written for therapists specializing in grief and uh, 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 grief and trauma, so that he can know what it is this therapist wants from him, and it works. He learns how to deliver the goods. At his next session, he launches into a tirade, one in which he's careful to drop the occasional therapy word like validate and toxic guilt. And he's you know, talking about this with his brother later, and he's talking about how, you know, by this time I was pounding myself on the breastbone with rage as I said that it just by God was not my fault that. That what? Asked his brother. That's just what the therapist said, says Hal. You know, the professional literature had this whole bold font section on abrupt pauses during high-effect speech. So Hal thought, well, I'll have some abrupt pauses during my high-affect speech. And he, so he has this pause. It, was, it just wasn't his fault that his first thought upon entering the kitchen was, something smells delicious. He was hungry. He had been playing tennis after all. Anyway, and anyway, so... After that, he just sort of breaks down sobbing uncontrollably, and the therapist is thrilled. It works. He delivers the goods. It's not easy to find the right words, knowing what to say and how to say it in a way that sort of delivers the goods. In the case of this letter, delivering the goods is a relatively tall order. Yes, Paul expresses a good deal of confidence that Philemon will do what is asked and more. On the other hand, it's not as though Paul just can dash off a quick two-sentence note 
Hey, be a sport, Philemon. Take the kid back. Give him a break. It's not a long letter, but every word of it is devoted to delivering the goods. You know, Paul even uh, expresses the fact that, hey, I could, I could do this. and We could go about this another way. I could be heavy-handed about it. After all, the gospel that Paul preached and taught and exemplified in his own life, for Philemon, that launched his own life in a new direction. For him, it was like being born fresh, born anew. And when the person who gives you all that says they need something from you, you don't need to know why, you just do it. But Paul refuses to go that route. He wants this done on the basis of love. You know, and I, I imagine you can appreciate that. You appreciate that he doesn't go the heavy-handed route and still feel a little disappointed with Paul. Paul does not, for example, provide a sweeping critique of the institution of slavery. You know, people should not own other people. You know, had Paul done that, had that been the thing that Paul said in that that letter, maybe slavery would have had no place in our own nation's history. Now, it's true that by making slavery race-based, it is so unlike uh, the practice of slavery in the ancient world. And what's more, even though Paul doesn't make an explicit case, the fact is there are plenty of things in, in the uh, Bible that we ignored when we justified slavery back in uh, the antebellum self, you know, such as the command to not make slavery a permanent state. We ignored that part. Uh, you know, there in Ex- or, uh, Leviticus, it says, you know, on the year of Jubilee, slaves are set free. Well, we ignored that. But there still were verses to cherry pick, which we did. And some of those cherry picked verses were written by Paul. And as a result, even after we abolished slavery 150 150 years ago, we still have an open wound as a result. The bodies hauled off in Buffalo are evidence of that wound. But let's say Paul does go that route. Let's say Paul does say, slavery is an offense against God. First of all, you know, at that time, there were a lot of people that relied on the opportunity to be a slave. It was like, I'll be a slave or I'm going to starve. Second, if if they were to just end slavery, the whole economy would just collapse in the Roman Empire. And that doesn't justify slavery. That just means that were Paul to push this this agenda, and Rome were to find out about it, well, they would just squash the church. This church would never get off the ground. Right? They'd want to protect their economy. So, Paul does not say, look, Philemon, this is just how it's going to be. But again, to ju- use any of what Paul says here to justify slavery, I mean, it's clearly a deliberate attempt to distort what he's saying. Um, he, in fact, this refusal to go this heavy-handed route illustrates, again, why this 
growing uh, Christian nationalism is just wrong-headed. It's heresy. That's not how the gospel works. It is less about imposing laws and policies from above. The gospel is about transformation within. Now, can a law help facilitate personal transformation? Sure. It can help facilitate personal transformation in good ways and in bad ways. Civil rights laws helped people overcome their racism. It also caused other people to become bitter, deeply embittered, and their racism got ugly. The argument Paul makes in this letter depends on that inward transformation, the inward transformation of Philemon. The logic of it hinges on Philemon recognizing the radical nature of grace. That out of love for us, God did not refuse to do anything that was beneath God's status. Enduring scorn, enduring shame meant nothing if it meant restoring us to God's self. And that love is no less available to beggars and slaves and scoundrels than it was to power brokers royalty and the do-gooders that love united us all in ways no differences could divide us you know it's easy to miss how radical an idea that is and i think part of the reason we miss how radical that is because the idea oh you love everybody is something we hear all the time and not just in church it's the message that pops up all over the place Everybody recognizes the need to love everybody. But sometimes I think we say we love everybody because it saves us from having to love particular bodies, particular people. Talking about everybody is just the way we put all those somebodies in a blender. You know, and and we get rid of all their particular problems and quirks and of all those particular people and what you're left with is is sort of this humanity smoothie. And who doesn't love a smoothie? But Paul is not content to have us just love the humanity smoothie. He wants us to love particulars. The gospel must inform how we love and live in relationship with actual individuals. Gospel requires us to get specific. It's not just an idea. It is is a reality as specific and tangible as the person who stands in front of you holding you a letter in his outstretched hand. A slave who caused you some real trouble, who took advantage. You can say that you love everybody but it's encountering the particular bodies that it's time to deliver the goods. To demonstrate that you've received the goods, the good news. Because Paul's not just asking for a return to the status quo, to pretend that the whole mess never happened and just go back to the way things were. No, it's not just back to the way things were. This is not just a wayward slave who showed a lapse in judgment And all that was not just a hassle. No, Philemon must see it as a gift. Onesimus left as a slave, but returns as family. So take him inside. 
Let him rest from his travels, not in the slaves' quarters, but in the guest room, the room you're going to prepare for Paul, hopefully, when he comes to visit. And have a meal ready for him when he wakes up, his family. You know, um, this whole business with the seating arrangement, uh, there's, it's, there's a temptation to have a congregational smoothie as well. As a, you know, and, and I think we, this plan, I mean, it was, we developed a plan and it was an attempt to serve this community. And, but then when we had our meetings, the particular people uh, who had particular feelings and concerns came up. And so we want, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough to just sort of think it was this plan was going to work in a, for the congregational smoothie. No, we wanted to work for everyone, for the particular people. And so we revised, we pushed the date back, and then uh, we had a meeting again, and we revised it again. And you know what? Of course it would be great if we had had a plan that we could stick with the whole time. That would be great. But what's more important, the way we're trying to deliver the goods, the way is when we respond and love the particular people, particular concerns, particular uh, uh, reservations. So again, the full details of that plan will be forthcoming, but it has been a great opportunity to, to work together, uh, to love one another in tangible ways in a difficult situation. And I don't know what other sort of particular people you're gonna run into this week, but I pray that you are blessed, that you are able to deliver the goods, that that inward transformation uh, shapes how you respond. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.